Good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much for joining today's um, event. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all here to attend ODI's panel on Critical Minerals Race to Net Zero. My name is Dr. Rebecca Naden, and I'm the Director of ODI's Global Risks and Resilience Division and Head of the Global China 2049 Initiative. The Global Risks and Resilience Team looks at new and emerging threats and our risk-informed development approach looks at how we assess these threats and help decision makers understand risks, opportunities and uncertainties in, in the options that they face. So I'm really excited about today's event. Um, this is the first event in ODI's Geopolitics of Transition series, where we're really looking to explore different global and regional transitions that are shaping 21st century risk landscape and the opportunities across our world. As we look at the risks, we look at the opportunities, and we also look at some of the trade-offs these transitions create. So this is why we're thinking about critical minerals today. As we all know, the global demand for critical minerals is expected to soar in the coming years as countries transition to low carbon economies, high tech industries continue to grow, rare earth elements and minerals such as aluminium, copper and cobalt will play a crucial role in the development of those electricity networks, EV vehicles and renewable energy and much more. But also, as we know, geopolitics is driving calls for diversification of supply chains, while climate impacts makes the energy transition even more urgent. But, there, but is there sufficient investment going to the mining sector to support the energy transition? And what are the opportunities that demand for critical minerals create for resource-rich economies? And what are some of the geopolitical, environmental and social risks that countries must navigate? What are the different approaches that countries are taking to develop mineral resources and supply chains? So what we want to do today is really explore some of those questions and more in our panel discussion. Certainly when we think about critical minerals and rare earths, the usual discussion in the West is about the rare earth race between the US and China or China's dominance of global supply chains and these minerals' importance to achieving net zero, of course, all valid issues. But actually, today, we want to have a slightly different discussion. So first of all, our discussion will include looking at the opportunities and risks for resource-rich African and Asian economies, and the different approaches that these, companies are, these countries are taking to develop mineral resources and stimulate um, that investment into um, upgrading domestic value chains. Secondly, also what we want to think about is the role these minerals play in achieving a renewable energy transition. This is undisputable, but also we cannot solve one problem, climate change, by exacerbating environmental degradation, on the other hand. So today, I also want us to delve into what risk management approaches and how changing practices for mining companies have evolved and what that has meant for an investment, as well as hearing views from other geographies where critical mineral production is ramping up. So in terms of the format of today's event, we're gonna start with some questions for the panelists. And I'm really delighted that we have such an excellent panel of speakers today to discuss some of these pressing issues. Um, and then we're going to move to a more free flowing discussion 
um, where we'll also encourage um, the audience um, to put their um, questions forward. And you can submit that via the chat function. Um, so we really hope um, that you are going to enjoy what promises to be a very um, informative um, discussion. So when we're talking about energy transition and critical minerals, it's impossible not to talk about Africa. Um, the continent is already a source of much of the raw, raw materials. But as was the case across other regions, mining has not always contributed to their equitable and sustainable development. Today, many countries see the current demand as an opportunity to support diversification and move up value chains. Um, widely, there's a recognition that the conversation around critical minerals needs to change to create more value for resource-rich countries. And this is what we really want to dig into today. So whether that's actually happening or not, and what it will take to navigate the risks and opportunities to support development in countries and communities where mining takes place is something that we're going to um, explore. So without further ado, I'm very happy to introduce um, our first panelist, Silas Olang from Africa Energy Transition Advisor at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. So Silas is an economist, a development practitioner, and an academician with over 30 years experience. Um, and for the past 15 years, Silas has focused on natural resource governance. So he's well placed to um, engage in today's discussion. Um, he's extensively engaged at the national and regional extractive industries governance initiatives and participated in many high level cons consultations. He's based in Tanzania, um, so Silas can provide us with expert insight on how some of these issues surrounding critical minerals are playing out in East Africa um, and, of course, um, the wider continent. So, Silas, um, my first question for you is, what are the opportunities and risks of the critical minerals um, race for resource-rich economies in East Africa? and the wider continent? And how are countries already capitalizing on these opportunities whilst managing those risks um, or potential trade-offs to support um, industrial development ambitions? Uh, th thank you very much, uh, Rebecca, for having me. And uh, yes, thanks for a great question. Um, I think we all know that any mineral extraction is actually a double-edged sword. On one hand, they play a crucial role in enhancing and enabling transition to a cleaner and more sustainable energy systems. But on the other hand, you know, there are substantial environmental and social impacts associated with the extraction and the use of these minerals, but also the disposal. Of, of, of uh, remains of these minerals. Africa, as you, you rightly pointed out, you know, uh, contribution in meeting the global net zero is quite significant. Uh, we know that uh, the continent has like two thirds of the world's, you know, cobalt reserves. And this, these are in the uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. And about 30% of the world lithium reserves, uh, partly in the particular Republic of Congo, but also Zimbabwe, uh, are the largest producers in, uh, in the continent. But also the continent has over one-fifth of the world's 
graphite reserves. And these are found in uh, Madagascar, Mozambique, and Tanzania, uh, which will play a central role in developing electric vehicle batteries, storage technologies, and so forth. About 30% of the world uh, manganese reserves are also found in, in the continent. So the surge in global uh, demand for this mineral presents Africa with a huge opportunity as it is well positioned, not only as a major supplier of these uh, uh, essential minerals, but also it's an opportunity to attract more investment in exploration and production of these minerals. Mindful of the fact that uh, these countries and Africa as a continent is relatively underexplored, considered, uh, you know, uh, compared to other countries uh, in continent like Australia. It is also an opportunity to increase uh, in-country value addition and integration of global supply, integration in the global supply chain. The immediate policy interventions has largely been, you know, the restrictions on the export of raw minerals. Addressing the challenges such as lack of uh, processing capacity, which is a major bottleneck to further advance uh, in added value midstream activities and better returns uh, can be made in this midstream opportunity. So this is, this is one of the major uh, challenges that we need to be addressed, if at all, uh, you know, the export uh, the, 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 the export ban restrictions are actually uh, will, will will generate you know the desired um, outcome. But regional coordination and collaboration is also key, but currently is relatively weak, and therefore targeting strategic partnerships at the global level are critical for Africa to navigate you know the geopolitical complexity of uh, competition, especially at the upstream mining you know, stage, and also processing capacity constraints, as I mentioned. The other opportunity is, is really generating highly needed uh, green jobs for growing youth population in Africa, especially uh, you know, uh, developing competitive supply base for the mining sector would generate jobs and lower min, you know, uh, mining cost for the trans transition. So it will have like a double um, impact. But the other one is also increasing revenue for financing critical sustainable social economic development, uh, including the energy transition plans that are critical. And, and, and now many countries in, in Africa are actually uh, starting to pursue the development of uh, energy transition plans. So the revenues will be uh, quite uh, a useful contribution to finance such plans. Um, but also increasing you know, exports, uh, which again, will help these countries you know, improve their, their, their balance of trade. However, it's, it's very unfortunate that, uh, you know, the, you know, the, 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 the large amount of these minerals are found in countries 
that are already struggling with governance uh, and high levels of corruption uh, and also uh, you know uh, constrained civic space. So the governance is critically important if at all these initiatives and this opportunity will be turned into reality for many countries in, in Africa. Therefore, together with such uh, you know, encouraging policy interventions, there is a dire need you know, to protect the environment. You know? uh, experience has shown that once prospectors discover uh, you know, reserves, and companies and governments are subject to strong incentives to develop them. And once the mine is developed, environmental protection is typically weak. Uh, to prevent you know, the environmental destruction, I think the government should establish areas of vast and valuable biodiversity in which exploration and extraction should be unlawful. Uh, this is, could be the way of, uh, you know, tempering, you know, the incentives to undermine you know, environmental social uh, standards once extraction is that, and especially at this point where there is a rush, you know, to uh, get, uh, you know, the minerals um, out. Corruption risks are even greater when it comes to transition minerals. The past commodity booms have taught us a lesson that the spike in demand as it is now tends to unleash large waves of corruption. The promise of soaring profits and fast-paced deal-making increased the corruption risk appetite of private and public sector actors alike while regulators actually struggling to keep up with, 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 with that because of the weak institutional capacities. So making information available uh, publicly uh, about the mineral deals is needed to detect corruption and to enable informed dialogue about transition mineral projects and their impact um, at all levels from national to community. Uh, levels. There is also a need to build, you know, from voluntary standards to mandatory legal frameworks that uphold transparency and integrity uh, in the uh, construction of these minerals. I'll stop there for now. I'm happy to continue. Um, thank you very much, um, Silas. You raised some really um, important points. Um, I mean, some that sort of leap out, I think very interesting your point on the need for um, enhanced um, regional coordination to um, help navigate um, some of these challenges. Um, and then, as you rightly say, the, there's a huge opportunity here um, for green jobs and the importance as well of some of the, the revenue um, generation um, from some of these resources to then go back into the country, which is absolutely critical to support um, energy transition plans. Um, but then also, as you say, um, some of the challenges um, around um, around governance um, and that need, I think, um, as you quite rightly point out, to 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 protect um, biodiversity um, in all of this. Um, as I sort of said in my introduction, there's a lot of focus 
quite rightly on on climate change and um, but also at the same time we also need to be ensuring that for example the convention on biodiversity um, and those um other international and regional initiatives to protect um biodiversity um is also met um that actually leads us on um very well to um to our our second um speaker of the day um, I'd really like to now introduce uh, Soad Chambizi, who's an ESG analyst at Benchmark Mi Mineral Intelligence. Um, Soad um, specialises in cobalt and has a spread knowledge of lithium and nickel. Um, prior to Benchmark, um, she worked in sustainability certification and environmental management um, and has a um, bachelor's and master's from the University of Satif in Algeria, and also a second master's um, in sustainable cities um, from the University um, of Leeds. So, uh, so I'd welcome. So we heard from Silas um, about some of those challenges um, that both within the government uh, issues such as governance and, and corruption, um, and then also, um, of course, some of the challenges that companies face um, in terms of investment. Um, as we know, mining um, is a risky business, for example, operationally, financially, environmentally and socially, um, as Silas pointed out. But from your um, experience, um, what are some of the environmental and social risks um, in the production of critical minerals um, such as lithium? And how have the sustainability and risk management practices in critical mineral production evolved and have they gone far enough? Hello, uh, everybody, and thank you for the invitation, Rebecca. Um, so I think from like Benchmark's point of view and based on the stakeholders' engagements that we do, um, water, from an environmental point of view, I will just break it by environmental, social, and then we can go to the second question. From an environmental point of view, water pollution and water scarcity is always a major issue um as probably some of the um uh, you know that lithium is um and a wall um like a it takes a lot of water to pump brine out of the um, earth and also for spodumene uh processing which might uh, put some constraints on community access to water um, also, water pollution is um, a very important topic. Uh, we have seen, um, um, for example, um, based on our analysis, only 24% of, of um, uh, lithium companies, they have um, um, or they implement water pollution uh, monitoring systems. So that shows the, 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 um, the industry's commitments to these issues. Um, Water pollution also will lead less to the question of better waste management, uh, either wastewater or um, uh, solid wastewater management. There is also a lack of that. Another very important topic is biodiversity threats, as uh, Mr. Silas already mentioned. Um, uh, the most of the mining activities that are happening in the world right now are happening in either Latin America, um, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, Southeast Asia, or for the case of graphite, it would be uh, China. And all of these continents or regions of the world, they have very high biodiversity 
uh, uh, fauna um, and, and flora. Uh, I think the DRC has the second um, or the third uh, largest rainforest in the world. Same for um, uh, Indonesia, where 7% of the global supply of cobalt comes and um, I think it's 50% of the nickel um, global supplies comes. Um, however, um, we have seen a lack of um, implementation of um, or the um, lack of industry attention to uh, the implementation of any biodiversity um, um, uh, conservation efforts. Uh, it's, it, it, both in in as like for my knowledge, both in DRC and in uh, Indonesia, um, for example, for DRC, there are a couple of academic papers and documented um, research that uh, was found on the effects of of mining, basically more for deforestation, um, and you all know what happens with deforestation. There is a, a loss of trees, a loss of also loss of all the. Um, the, the species that live that live with a, within that environment. Um, for Indonesia, last I think last month, um, our team um, was uh, doing a site visit in Indonesia, and um, when they were flying, because um, the uh, nickel, um, um, uh, cobalt, and nickel, ni sorry, cobalt is a byproduct of nickel, and these operations they happen in. Um, uh, in islands in uh, Indonesia. Uh, so you would need to take an airplane from island and island to an island to see the the uh, the um, processing and the mining and processing uh, factories. And when my colleagues were flying over the um, over the uh, the islands, there was like a gray area around the the islands uh, which, all that gray area, area is just from um, polluted water going directly to the sea without any measures of uh, treatment. This is only for water. Um, and you can imagine what would that do to the coral reefs there, to the very high biodiverse um, marine life uh, in the region. So, yeah, biodiversity is always um, a very high topic. Um, I would say also um, green um, uh, house gas emissions. Although in our stakeholder um, uh, engagement, we find that um, GHG emissions or carbon emissions are more of a uh, concern for companies rather than um, NGOs and especially local NGOs, probably because they think that the effect is still um, ahead. And for NGOs, they are more uh, interested in like the immediate um, uh, immediate um, uh, threats, uh, but definitely there is a focus from companies specifically on um, uh, carbon emissions. Um, probably if there is one thing that I want the audience to get from my intervention today is an environmental problem never stops at being an environmental problem. I'll give you an example. An environmental problem, let's say you have water pollution. Water pollution means that there are toxic chemicals and um, solid metals that are going into um, into the um, 
into the um, uh, the aquifers uh, and into freshwater sources. And this has been already documented in the uh, the DRC. They found arsenic, they found cobalt and other chemicals in in um, in water in the DRC. And then you would have a community that is that lives like five miles away from that um, uh, from that source of water and that drinks from the source from that from those aquifers through wells. Um, the academic paper found that there are people who are being sick from those um from those uh, toxics and chemicals children born with uh, with uh, birth defects and because the people there they don't have um savings they rely on day-to-day -day, um, um income so in order to get treated they need to um um they need to borrow money and also they need to stop working and then they can't pay the borrowed money because they are they are not working and they enter they enter into um a poverty circle and this is how usually poverty circles they they occur in such environments that stress from the debts the like uh, the lost health will add um, or will engender more uh, pro more social problems like alcoholism, um, uh, abuse, self-abuse, and um, uh, um, domestic abuse. So this is just an example of how can an environmental problem becomes a social problem and probably further becomes a governance problem. Now, if you speak about other social problems within the mineral, uh, the mineral industry, I would say community development is always a high topic, uh, hot and high topic. Um, we speak with local NGOs quite a lot in benchmark, and although they are, especially in DRC, although they are, um, they are. Uh, uh, requirements from the government for companies to um, to implement um, local development initiatives. I think uh, for the DRC, companies, mining companies need to invest 0.3% of their um, income in community development. And this is um, aside from uh, countries' investments in community development. However, when we speak with local, uh, with local uh, people, they say that some companies they delay the financing one company they for one company they have been waiting for the financing since 2021 and now we are at the end of 2023 there is also lack of community engagement um communities are rarely uh, consulted so even when companies they they do invest in community development projects those projects are not the real need of the um of the communities um also health and safety health and safety is always an, an issue in the mining industry although health and safety policies and indicators are one of the best performing indicators in our matrix but um there's still a lot of work to be done on that especially for um artisanal miners i'm not aware if you are um uh, if you know the term but it's basically for our audience it's basically people digging the minerals with their hands and with very rudimentary uh, um, appliances and we have had several um uh, ngos claiming that there were death uh, cases unreported um death cases and hazardous working conditions on the um on mine sites 
Um, what else? Yeah, so probably these are the main um, uh, e, e and S environmental and social uh, risks that are around that, um, that are around minerals extraction. Um, how that is evolving with time, I think from an upstream point of view, uh, I mining and refining co companies, um, there is, if I, I would say there is um, um, an uptake of international standards on the policy side. However, in the implementation, there is always a lack. For example, I will give you an example. In our analysis, we analyze how many companies have resettlement policies and only 13% of the companies have a resettlement policies. From those 13%, only 40%, they follow uh, the International Finance Corporation on resettlement standards, which are considered as best practices. It's the same for um, UNGP, United Nations um, GP, uh, guidelines on human rights. There is like companies and their policies, they say that we follow this, but when we look at the implementation um, side of things, we don't find any proofs that they have implemented the UNGP. Um, this is a recurrent theme. I must say that in the upstream, um, uh, mining and refining companies are lacking behind other industries, um, and they, they, they would need to do a bit better than this. This is not to say that not all companies are doing good, but um, like we are seeing that the top companies are staying in the top and the problem is with the bottom um, um, companies, bottom in, in the inner, in the, uh, in the ESG sphere, and they are not moving as fast or they are not moving fast enough to um, meet the challenges in the industry. From the downstream, um, I, I must say that there is a, um, a big emphasis downstream, I mean, battery manufacturers and um, um, uh, EV manufacturers, electrical vehicle manufacturers. There is a huge um, uh, push uh, for uh, certifications. I know that um, like certification status IRMA, uh, IRMA is one of the most thorough and detailed mine certifications and their board is 50% um, stakeholders, 50% corporations, so there is a fair um, fair representation. And uh, don't quote me on this, but I think Tesla has committed um, to not or to um, get mineral supply only from uh, IRMA certified uh, mining con uh, mining uh, companies in the future. But I'm not sure of this information, but there's definitely um, uh, a push towards um, uh, a better ESG um, credentials for mining and refining countries. Thank you uh, so much. So thank you for that, you know, really kind of informative um, outline for us and, and also bringing a bit of the, the human um, element to to some of these challenges um i think as you said you know you, you really want the audience to take away um from your intervention this issue that an environmental problem then you know cascades into then becoming um, a health problem which in turn becomes a social problem so i think this really emphasizes the need for a, a proper comprehensive 
understanding of all of those risks and some of the tr the trade-offs um, and how um, we cannot get locked into um, addressing environmental um, issues just in a silo. We need to understand um, what the um, implications of those problems are and how important um, it is to um, have that holistic understanding um, so that proper mitigation measures can be put in place. And I think also very useful um, that, that you outlined for the audience as well, um, some of the challenges in, in, yes, you say the policy uptakes there, but the implementation, we see that across the board on a whole range of issues. Um, but then also that difference between both upstream um, and downstream um, with companies like Tesla and others um, you know, making commitments, but it's not um, uniform across the board. Um, thank you very much. Um, so we've talked um, about, we've had some examples um, from Silas and so um, from Africa, um, but countries in, in every region as also, as, as Soad touched on, are looking to tap into the demand for critical minerals to support um, economic growth um, and diversif diversification. And actually, one country that um, myself and the team here at ODI have been increasingly um, looking at is Mongolia. So a country, it's landlocked between two large neighbours, uh, China and Russia. Um, it's grown very rapidly in the last few decades and has experienced um, multiple economic shocks um, in the last few years. Um, and in response to this, um, the government of Mongolia has adopted what it describes as the new recovery policy. Um, and as I mentioned here at ODI um, in the team, we've been looking at how um, the government can enhance the effectiveness of this policy. Um, and the recent launch of underground operations at OU Tolgoi, um, the largest uh, mining project in the country's history, um, promises um, which promises to support um, its economy by providing opportunities to reinvest in um, diversification. So I'm actually really happy um, to be able to introduce our next panelist, um, Fiona Blythe, who's the um, British ambassador to uh, Mongolia. Um, this is a recent appointment for Fiona. She was um, appointed ambassador in July of this year um, and is giving her, uh, uh, which is giving her a front row um, seat on, as to how the country pursues um, this new economic um, recovery um, policy and how um, OU um, Tolgoy is ramping up production. So Fiona previously served um, at the United Nations in Somalia um, the Cabinet Office, um, the International Peace Institute, the Clinton Foundation, um, amongst other um, roles. Um, so Fiona, um, if I could um, turn to you then um, for the uh, for, for my next question. Um, Fiona, could you tell us a little bit about how the UK um, is working in partnership with um, emerging and developing economies um, such as Mongolia, but also perhaps in, in Central Asia um, more broadly, um, how they ca are capitalizing on opportunities for um, critical minerals transition to support um, sustainable socioeconomic development. And also from your perspective, um, what opportunities for engagement um, is the UK looking to explore in the region? 
Yes, brilliant. Thanks, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. Thank you very much for in including me today. Um, I thought I might just pick up a couple of points that you mentioned about demand, because critical minerals are by definition those minerals that are most important to a country's economy and whose supply chains are, are most at risk. And as you said, we're just not going to achieve our net zero targets without support, without securing access to those mineral minerals. A sort of quite a pertinent example here in Mongolia is that so far globally we've mined 700 million tonnes of copper in sort of human existence and we're going to have to do the same again in the next 22 years if we're going to be able to meet uh, if, if we're going to be able to meet demand uh, for copper for energy transition. So I suppose that's a long way of saying that that what the UK thinks is that one country alone um, can't do that we can't act unilaterally, we need to, we need to address the issues that are facing us um, together. Because we all, re we all rely on these mineral supply chains. And the supply chains are vulnerable to market shocks, to geopolitical events, as you said, to logistical disruptions, particularly felt here in Mongolia, um, and at a time when global demand is, is rising faster than the supply. You mentioned the impact of um, geopolitical events uh, when we started, and Russia's invasion of with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've we've seen an acceleration in the pace of transition to diversify energy systems. That's putting additional pressure on critical mineral supply chains, and we expect that pressure to grow. Um, China controls many of the critical mineral chains uh, supply chains. But I would say that's that's not all bad. Chinese investment has significantly reduced the costs in the renewable energy market. We all benefit from that. Um, but it has also created some over-dependencies which make these global supply chains less secure. Um, and China has market dominance on the supply and the demand side. And in here in Mongolia, almost 100% of Mongolia's copper exports go to China. So just to say again, that I think from a UK perspective, our sort of main message is that we need to work together to develop these secure and diverse supply chains. But also, as Soad was saying, we need to ensure that there's high environmental, social and governance standards. And we're um, a big supporter of the um, Mineral Security Partnership, which is a, a group of countries that are a group of user countries that are looking to raise ESG credentials to build a diplomatic network and to really incentivize um, strong uh, private sector support. So I'll just say a few words about uh, Mongolia as well, because Mongolia has got, we think, deposits of copper, coal, floor spar, gold, iron, tungsten, uranium, zinc, a long list of minerals. Um, and it's also home to two of the largest copper mines in the world. One is in the in the north of Mongolia in, in Erdnet that was developed um, in, in the 1970s as a joint venture between the Soviet Union and the, the Mongolian government. And it's still a state owned enterprise today. Um, and the second mine, which is the one that you mentioned, Rebecca, which is Oyutolgoi, which is in the Gobi Desert in the south of Mongolia. Um, it was discovered in 2001, and it is now being developed by a British Mongolian mining company, Rio Tinto. And that's a joint venture between the government of Mongolia and uh, Rio Tinto. Um, and it's Mongolia's copper reserves that are really kind of putting it on the, on the map. There's an estimated uh, 1 billion tonnes of, of copper in Mongolia, and the ore body in Oyutolgoi is 
thought to be about the size of Manhattan, just to kind of give you a sense of scale. Um, but I think the mine is interesting for a lot for a number of reasons because one of the things that the UK is trying to do to to inject into into this industry is more responsible mining. And I'll give you some examples of how are you Tolgoy is doing that because Rio Tinto invested like fifteen billion dollars um, into the mine, and it's probably going to be like the third or fourth biggest copper mine in the world but 97 percent of its workforce is mongolian um the uh, workforce reached about twenty-two thousand at its peak 22 percent of them are female um and there's a goal to have 50 percent employees by female employees by 2030 um and when it's fully operational which is probably going to be in the next couple of years the mine's going to provide really significant revenue to the Mongolian government, and it will probably generate about a third of Mongolian GDP. So the operation is making quite a big contribution to, the, to Mongolia's economic development. It's the largest taxpayer. It's the largest employer in the country. And obviously, it supports, you know, um, indirect industries from that. There's you know, over a thousand domestic suppliers and, and partners as well. But as Sarah said, there's, there's, there are risks to that. The mine, mining requires, you know, significant water supply, and in somewhere like the, the Gobi Desert, that can really divert water away from local communities. So something like Oyutolgoi, eighty-five percent of their water is recycled. They have a policy of zero direct uh, discharge. There's no wastewater. It's all reused and reused until it's lost through evaporation. They've got a big biodiversity program, big cultural heritage program, and they really invested very heavily in the local community, schools, roads, water purification. So that's that's an example of responsible mining. Um, but as well as that, we're trying to, the UK is trying to support Mongolia to improve its infrastructure. You've got to get the minerals out. Um, and you mentioned Mongolia is landlocked uh, and it has, uh, it, it has some really big infrastructure challenges, it needs um, better roads, better rail, better connections. Um, we're also trying to create a more kind of stable investor uh, friendly business environment. There's going to be a new mining law passed um, at the end of this year, and it includes things like um, that are already underway that um, Silas mentioned about increasing transparency by putting everything online, reducing corruption by making everything digital. Um, and we're also trying to uh, reduce government interventions, those state, reduce those state owned enterprises. And we're advising Mongolia on how to reinvest those proceeds of mineral wealth that you mentioned at the beginning, to channel them back into the economy, to invest in the infrastructure that I mentioned, education, skills development, public services, rather than just going into the pockets of a, of a few people. Um, for, and a good example of that in the in the in the minerals law that's currently in going through Parliament, um, ten percent of the royalties of of, the, of mines will go to the town government, and twenty percent will go to the provisional government, uh, the provincial government, uh, under this new law. Just very quickly on Central on Central Asia, we're working a lot in Kazakhstan, um, including by uh, we've just signed uh, uh, an MOU with the Kazakhstan National Geological Survey. We hope to do the same here in Mongolia. Um, and so there's a lot of potential in the region. But I also just want to just very quickly say about the challenges. Um, 
88% of Mongolia's minerals are exported without processing. Silas touched on the same issue in Africa. So we're, we've got to we've got to think about how we work with the government to to change that. It is landlocked. There are logistical challenges, and it basically means that Mongolia is just really vulnerable to those geopolitical shocks, including the closure of the border during COVID. And much of the country is not actually covered by modern geological surveys. Some Soviet studies, but nothing in detail. So. In summary, we basically we need to improve the security and the sustainability of the mineral supply chains. We need to diversify supply. We need to work collaborat collaboratively together. Um, we need to build global capacity. We need to diversify the processing locations. And we've got to help create those kind of secure uh, supply chains. And we've got to do that whilst raising the ESG standards. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll leave it there, but I'm happy to, happy to talk further about any of that. Um Thanks very much, Fiona. Yes, I mean, you you highlight some considerable challenges there. Um, but I think, you know, important point that both, as you mentioned, you and Silas have touched on is this fact that, you know, a lot of, for many of these countries, um, these minerals are being exported um, without, um, without the processing. So how do we ensure um, that the countries can benefit um, from from the scaling up that needs to happen and then to ensure that those revenues are coming back um, and I think a, a theme that that you know is, is is very prevalent that we can't escape from is this geopolitical risk um, you know we I think perhaps mining companies before you know they were would would consider um, operational risks and of course environmental risks but now um, it seems that um, on on the top of the uh, the risk matrix um, is that geopolitical um, risk. Um, so, thank you, Fiona. We'll be coming back for some more questions um, to all the panelists um, to pick up on some of those points in a minute. Um, but before we do, um, I'd like to just turn now to um, our our last um, speaker. Um, so I'd like to introduce um, Elena Borodinia, who's Senior Transition Risk Analyst here um, in the Global Risk Team. Um, so Elena's work focuses on managing the risks and opportunities of geopolitical and low-carbon transition risks. Um, she's worked on Chinese investment in infrastructure and mining across um, Africa and Central Asia. Um, and most recently, um, Elena has been looking at opportunities and risks um, relating to Ukraine, um, reconstruction, including its plans to scale up um, the mining sector. Um, so, Elena, Ukraine. Why has Ukraine been looking um, at scaling up its critical um, minerals? Um, and, you know, an obvious question, perhaps, what are the geopolitics of mining in the country in the current context um, of, a, of an ongoing um the ongoing conflict um war with with russia um and really you know is managing environmental social and governance risk of critical minerals kind of relevant given the fact that there is um a war going on should we even be thinking about that um at this point um Thanks, Rebecca, and thanks to um, my fellow panelists. I'll be picking up on some of the points, and I'll try to keep my intervention brief because I know that we also want to leave some time for the for the Q and A. Uh, for Ukraine, I think the first point I would like to highlight is that Ukraine has already been producing some of the critical minerals. Um, so, for example, um, when it comes to titanium ores in 2021, Ukraine accounted for six or seven percent of global production. 
And it was also the fifth largest producer of manganese and sixth largest producer of graphite, although production has decreased um, due to operational logistics challenges that, um, that had come with the full-scale invasion of the country. Um, but Ukraine also has substantial reserves of um, critical minerals. I think some surveys suggest that it has about 20 of 38 critical minerals that you highlighted in its critical mineral strategy. And it has looked at accelerated investment in those minerals. Um, some official sources for all of the mineral, minerals are not available, um, but some Ukrainian researchers suggest that um, the country has about uh, 500,000 500, tons of lithium reserves, um, and none of those are currently being mined. And also has substantial reserves of titanium among top 10 countries in the world, but only 10% of that has been developed, um, as well as nickel, copper, and um, other minerals. Um, Ukraine has been looking to tap into the EU demand specifically for diversifying critical mineral supply chains due to its geography, but also its aspiration to be part of the union. Um, and it was also among the first countries to sign a critical minerals partnership um, with the EU. And activities uh, around that have been ongoing, even um, despite the invasion, which I, I think shows real commitment from both Ukraine and the EU to continue the work and um, to position Ukraine as a potential supplier um, for for the EU, um, but also as a prospective member country. Um, so, for example, Ukraine has um, is working on the new subsoil co code with the EU um, that will bring the country further in line with the legislation um, of uh, of the EU. Um, but I think there has there has been some analysis that suggested that um, Russian invasion of Ukraine was motivated by um, by Ukraine's critical minerals and other and other riches, for example, in agriculture, I don't think that was the primary factor driving um, driving the invasion. I think there were other geopolitical and political factors behind that. Um, but what I think is true is that um, if Russia gets its hands on um, and captures Ukrainian uh, critical mineral reserves, many of which are concentrated along that shift in front line or in the or in the adjacent regions, is that it can capture more of the world market. Um, so um, it can control the prices a little bit more, um, but also um, it can undermine Ukrainian development. And that's um, and that, and that's something that the country would be looking to do um, in the future, um, because this, the, war, the war will finish at some point, but we don't know what the security arrangements uh, would look like, which brings us to the question, what are the geopolitical risks of mining in the country, and I think um, Russia will continue being a will continue being a security threat. Um, it will it can undermine investor confidence, particularly in those um, regions that are bordering Russia, because there will be security threats associated um, with the country. But it can also look to destabilize the country politically, and I think this brings us back to the question of good ESG management, because uh, one of the ways it can do so is if environmental and social risks are not being properly managed. It can look to destabilize trust in the government and undermine trust in, in um, Ukraine's fragile democracy. Um, but also, if Ukraine doesn't see sufficient benefits come to the national economy and local economies, um, it can undermine trust in the EU integration process if Ukraine is just viewed as a as a hub for critical um, raw materials extraction and doesn't see benefits come to the local economy. Um, so um, Russia will continue being a threat, but I think China is also the other factor um, because China has been um, looking to tap into Ukrainian 
um, critical minerals. So it um, it was trying to bid for Ukrainian lithium reserves, um, but it has been unsuccessful. I think the question is whether whether China is going to try to do that again, and what does that mean for um, for Ukraine um, for Ukraine and its um, and its ambition to tap into the EU supply chains? Because the other driver, of course, is um, is a trend for uh, French shoring. Um, and we don't we don't quite know how how that's going to play out because there is nothing um, that will stop um, Ukrainian sorry Chinese companies trying to bid for um, for Ukrainian um, licensing process, especially if those have to be um, especially if those have to be open. Um, I think I'll stop there um, because I know we're quickly running out of time uh, and happy to pick this up in the Q and A. Um, thank you very much, um, Elena. Um, so we've talked um, quite a lot about some of the challenges, some of the um, risks. So before I open um, up to the to the audience to ask questions, I, I just had a couple of questions again for myself for the panelists. Perhaps um, starting with with Silas, and and then the same question to um, to so add, you know what what is needed to enable um, energy resource rich um, countries. What's needed to um, help them realise some of their ambitions um, around critical minerals? So, for example, you know how can investors be encouraged um, to invest in developing processing capacity? Um, in in producing countries. Um, perhaps if I could go to Silas first. Thank, thank you. Oh, sorry. Thank you, Rebecca, uh, for a great question. Yes, I, I think that is a very important question when it comes to, you know, developing uh, local processing capacity. And yeah, I, I think, as I mentioned in my presentation, first thing is really to address, you know, the uh, kind of bottlenecks that, that, that exist in these countries to develop uh, domestic uh, processing capacity. Some of these bottlenecks are, are energy because processing is necessarily an energy intensive process. And most of these countries do not have adequate, you know, energy to support processing. But also the infrastructure, poor uh, infrastructure also uh, act as a bottleneck uh, for domestic uh, processing. There is also a question of technology and skills. These are critical in, in uh, domestic uh, processing. Areas. Now, I think, the, the from economic point of view, the key point is how to address these bottlenecks in a way that would reduce, you know, uh, processing cost, and still make these countries competitive worldwide. Because if the processing cost is higher, then you know the the the, the export of processed uh, materials would be doubly expensive, and then. They won't be able to compete with uh, uh, advanced, you know, processing countries like China and, and, and others. So 
that is very important to address. So I think the one, one way of addressing this is, is probably uh, developing strategic investment plan, you know, uh, to address these, these, these bottlenecks. And part of the investment incentives that are, 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 are incentive package that are provided to investors could also include, you know, um, you know, how to reduce, you know, this cost of processing uh, in the country. But the other uh, aspect is also integrating, you know, uh, processing, domestic processing into a broader uh, energy transition plan for the countries. And in this case, it would be useful, um, I think, to use the uh, energy transition plan to mobilize global financing, uh, which is part of the, of the climate uh, finance. So yeah, mobilizing and developing uh, energy uh, transition plan and making you know, domestic value addition uh, and processing as part of the plan would enable uh, you know, attracting funds. And uh, we have seen countries like South Africa uh, and recently uh, Senegal, you know, developing just energy transition, you know, uh, partnerships, uh, which is, is, is one of the mechanisms to attract, you know, financing. And if local processing is part of that, uh, you know, uh, partnership, financing partnership, both for private sector, but also for public financing, I think that would address some of the, of the challenges. Thank you. Um, thank you, Sans. Yeah, no, I think that um, emphasis that you put on that that need to integrate um, integrate plans is is critical. We we see time and time again different government ministries developing different plans, and there's no integration. But actually, um, that is just so critical. Um, so, and I was going to come to you, but actually, I'll I'll just go to Fiona because I, I can see some questions coming up on the chat. Um, that I will direct to you, third, if if that's all right. Um, Fiona, perhaps just building on that um, theme of, you know, how do we how do we facilitate investment? You know, obviously you can speak from the UK perspective. You know, are there opportunities? Do you see UK businesses um, wanting to engage um, in the sector in in Mongolia and and, and Central Asia more broadly? You know. Do they need to be incentivized um, more? Um, yeah, thanks, Rebecca. And, and really interesting points, I think, from, from the other panelists on, on this as well. I mean, I think it's it's quite pertinent because this week is mining week in Mongolia, and it's um a big week organized by the Ministry of Mining, which is really focused this year on investment and attracting investors to Mongolia. I think that um, I think there's a lot of interest and I think there's a lot of potential, uh, which in itself is very exciting. I think there's some um, I think there's some questions that investors have quite rightly. Some of it is around um, mapping and surveying, I mentioned that before, um, and they're really, I think 25% of the country is has got modern, modern geological surveying. So I think there's more to be done in that space and British companies can actually help with that as well. So that's an opportunity. Um, 
Extraction, I think, is also um, an, an interesting area. You know, I sort of spoke a lot about Rio Tinto's huge investment in Oyo Tolgoy, but there's question marks until you know how many, how much deposits are there. You know, are, are companies willing to to make those huge investments, um, and can you justify it without knowing the quantities? So I think that's where, why the surveying and mapping is particularly important. Um, and I think that Silas's important points on you know infrastructure are really critical to realizing a, an investment. You can you can realize that there's an ore body here or that there's minerals here, but then how do you make that competitive? As Silas was saying, how do you how do you do that in a way that doesn't prohibitively overprice the minerals in, in a in a global market? It's particularly the case, as I mentioned, in Mongolia being landlocked, but the energy uh requirements uh, uh, uh as we were just saying are, are absolutely huge and at last I, I mean just also as well this this point about um about processing capacity i think there's another big area there for uh for, for companies to invest in but there i think the uk has got some specific technological expertise it can bring to that consulting expertise we don't have large smel smelters in the uk so I don't think that that's something that UK investors will be will be looking at, but can partner with others who are. And then lastly, there's the kind of issue of um, legislation and regulation, which needs to, I think, needs to be reassuring to investors to make sure that they're in. Um, they uh, to make sure that they can realize their invest their investments. The, Mongolia is doing a lot of work on this, as I mentioned. You know, the mining law, trying to build investor confidence, trying to put in place those reassurances that uh, that the investments in the country uh, will be will be secure. So I think it's all making progress. It's all very exciting, and I think um, I think it's quite it's quite future looking. It's quite forward looking, but you know, there are undoubtedly big challenges that remain. Um, yeah, no, thank you, um, Fiona. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is, you know, an exciting time. But I think, you know, recognising those challenges um, is an important part, is an, a critical part of then um, developing a, a sustainable, um, both financially, um, environmentally and socially ways forward. Um, that sort of also brings me on to a question now, another question from the audience. Um, so, Ad, um, a, a question for you here. Um, um, Michael says, um, you mentioned Tesla um, has signed up to um, only source minerals from the IRMA companies, countries. Could you speak more um, about IRMA? Um, is it a robust enough mechanism from an ESG perspective? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if um, if Tesla was the, the company, but I know one of the biggest um, um, minerals consuming um, companies, they have um, uh, committed to that, but I'm really not sure that if it's Tesla or not. But anyways, um, Irma is, as I said before, is one of the, the, uh, the most thorough and um, detailed certifications out there. It is a mine specific certification. So it only um, applies to mines. It doesn't apply to refiners and the uh, rest of and the midstream and, and the rest of the supply chain. 
um, as I also mentioned before, um, the the board of Irma is fifty percent um, um, uh, stakeholders, i.e., NGOs, and the other fifty uh, percent is um, corporations. So there is a, a kind of a fair. Um, um, uh, there is a fair share for everybody in in the industry. Um, it is quite a lengthy process and um, expensive process as well. And I, I'm sure I heard that some companies, even in the downstream, offer to pay for uh, mines to be certified um, by Irma. Uh, but it might have some gaps. But for the moment, is Irma is one of the uh, most thorough and detailed. Uh, and um, um, widely recognized um, ESG um, ESG certification in the market for the moment. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. Um, so the questions are coming uh, thick and fast now from our audience. Um, a geopolitical one now. Um, perhaps I'll turn to um, Elena from this one. Um, Elena, so the question is, what are the challenges of the energy transition in mining countries that mainly export minerals to China? Um, as an example, a huge share of Peruvian copper export goes to China. Um, thanks, Rebecca. I think that's that's a really interesting question. Um, we know that quite a lot of countries are not really on track or even haven't started thinking about the energy transition because um, in many of those countries, um, not not all the population actually has access to electricity in the first place. Um, but I would argue that uh, when it comes to China, there is um, two points, is how to incentivize better ESG practices and more energy efficient practices in the mining operations if there are no, um, if there is no binding mechanism to, for the for them to do so, um, if there is no pressure from the government on, the, on them to do so, we know that Chinese state-owned enterprises, for example, and private companies behave very differently in com in countries where they go and may be more responsive um, just to the government pressure if, the, if there is no such um, pressure um, to clean up the supply chains from the government, um, then that's a real challenge um, because mining industry plays a big role in the economies of those countries. Um, and I think the other the second point would be around the geopolitical exposure that those countries have to China, particularly if they send um, their raw materials for to China for processing, but also if Chinese companies are the main investors, um, that can really shrink the the space that they have uh, when it comes to the foreign policy maneuver, and particularly in the context of geopolitical volatility that we are in. Um, Thanks, Elena. Um, so we're almost um, out of time, but I just wanted to just turn to the panel one more time um, and, you know, just get the sense perhaps from them, you know, what what's their kind of one takeaway that they'd like the audience to, to go away with? Or, you know, do, do they feel, you know, broadly positive about this? I mean, we talk about the energy transition um, but we know it, it takes anywhere between, you know, one to 14 years to establish a mine. It takes, you know, one to four years to set up a factory. You know, how are, um, you know, does the panel feel that, you know, the countries, resource rich countries are going to be able to um, capitalize um, on this growing demand um, in the near future? Or, as I say, just um, share with the audience what's the kind of one thing that they would like to um, take away? Um, 
So, Ad, can I turn to you? Um, yes, of course. So probably the main point that I already mentioned earlier about an environmental um, issue being um, escalated to be a social issue. Um, yeah, ESG is not environmental, social and governance in silo. It is, um, it is, it is all one part of, of, of having um, sustainable, ethical, and green um, 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 and green uh, minerals and thus green batteries and then green um, laptops and green phones and ethical laptops and ethical phones um, it is all interlocked and it all it all it is all dependent um, on each other the the other point that I would say is also look for implementation indicators many companies they have policies they say that we do this but there is also um um, um uh, you would need to look for implementation proofs on that and probably the last thing for investors is the analysis that we do is based on companies behavior so um and based on companies level um um but an investor should go a bit more than that. Uh, probably an investor might like a company's ethos and my and they may disclose well, but realistically on the ground, they might be subcontracting a lot of the work done on the mine. Um, so investors uh, should do site visits and they should rely on audits, of course, and uh, uh, good audits, not bad audits, but for yeah, realizing that a company's level is a bit different than the asset level or the mine level is also a very important um, and, and key uh, point in ensuring that the mineral is ethical and sustainable. Thank you, Sawad. Thank you. Um, and Silas, to you, what's the what's the sort of key thing you'd like the audience to take away from today's discussion? Thank you very much, uh, Abby. Uh, the key takeaway is that, uh, you know, uh, to to be able to um, contribute uh, meaningfully to achieve the net zero, it is a responsibility of each actor really to contribute uh, to the same goal. But in that, in so doing, governance uh, is critically important. And we know the time is of essence. We still have a long, a quite short time, but the delays in uh, in uh, in uh, you know uh, the, the lead time from uh, uh, exploration to production is not only contributed by the technical challenges. Partly is contributed by the governance challenges, including you know uh, corruption, but also the lengthy and unclear policy and legal frameworks governing the licensing processes. And therefore, governance is critically important. But I just want to say also that unless uh, we make the process a win for the communities, uh, a win for the environment, we cannot dream of having a win for energy transition and reaching the, the, the net zero target. Thank you. Thanks, Alice. Fiona, your thoughts? 
Um, thanks, Rebecca. Yeah, just very quickly, my two takeaways I'm taking advantage is, is the first that we need to work together to diversify supply chains. We can't, no country can do it alone. And we don't want to return to a situation where a single country is, we're over dependent on a single country or, or small group of countries for either the, the extraction or the processing of minerals. The second is that this has to be done to the highest standards. And you asked, um, you asked if I felt positive. And I think that, I think it comes down to a choice for mineral rich countries about, it's more broadly about what sort of country do they want to be? Do they want to be the sort of country that um, it reinvests their, their natural wealth for the benefits of their citizens, protects their, their natural environment and preserves livelihoods and the environment for the good of their people? And, you know, Mongolia can tell you, um, tough lessons from uh, earlier in, in the century about, about what happens when you don't do that. Um, but I realize that's a luxurious choice for developing countries. And so we need to in, in, in incentivize and support the, 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 right, uh, the right outcomes on that. Thanks. Thanks, Fiona. Annalena, final word to you. Thanks, Rebecca. I would like to support um, what my previous panelists have said, have said um, about the governance and um, the importance of following their ideas due frameworks, um, but also the point around the geopolitics um, of the new or of the new energy transition order that, that, that we will be living with in the 21st century. Um, I think the assumption is often that um, th there will be the end of geopolitics when we transition for, from fossil from fossil fuels. I don't think that 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 will be the case because um, new powers will emerge. Um, the resource-rich economies will will benefit from the can benefit from the transition, um, and also those that produce um, those renewables that that we rely on. Um, so I think we're yet to understand what kind of world order we'll be living with um, in the in the decades to come. Um, thanks very much, Elena. So, ladies and gentlemen, that draws us um, to the end of today's events. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I think for me, some of the key takeaways um, are, you know, we, we, we can't be avoiding the geopolitical risk. That, that, that's, that's a kind of key theme. Um, as, our, our, as Silas so eloquently put it, we need to make it a win for communities and a win for the environment. Absolutely. Um, and as Sarah said, you know, ESG, it's not E, S and G in silo. I think that's really important. I think that came through quite a lot um, in the discussion. This need to have integration, um, integration between um, strategic investment plans, domestic um, um, processing, energy transition plans. I mean, we are at the initial stages, really, of this global energy transition. Um, we're going to need to scale up um, and I think that means that we really do need, um, as Fiona and others have said, to really understand the risks. And by risks, I also mean um, opportunities. Um, we need to have a comprehensive um, risk management approaches. Um, we cannot forget um, biodiversity um, and the importance of that um, in our quest to, to solve um, you know, one problem. Um, we need to really be thinking about that. And we need to be really thinking about um, incentives um, and financing and how um, governments and companies, how the public and private sector um, can be working together on this. 
and we need to be really cognizant of the realities um, that we are dealing with um, in in many of these these areas and not shy away from tackling some of those fundamental challenges, as Silas pointed out, your governance and corruption um, issues. Um, otherwise, we're simply going to be um, embedding further risk. So I would really like to thank our panelists for taking time to be with us today. Um, really, really grateful for your time. Um, also, a huge thanks to our audience for listening in. Um, so this event was brought to you today by the ODI's Global Risks and Resilience team. It's part of our Geopolitics of Transition series. So do look out for more events coming up. Um, we're working with change makers such as our wonderful panelists today um, across different sectors and countries and helping to support the understanding of risks and hopefully minimize some of these um, potential trade-offs, all um, working towards building resilience um, in what we know is a rapidly changing and complex world. So please do visit the Global Risk and Resilience section of the ODI website um, for more information. And we look forward to hearing from you um, in the future. But thanks again to our panelists. Um, and have a great day, everybody. Thank you very much. Um, thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.